This morning we are back in our Christmas cast series where we've been shining the spotlight on a variety of the characters that are involved in the nativity of Jesus and his birth and his incarnation. Uh, The incarnation, really, if you don't know what that is, is simply uh, that uh, doctrine that teaches that Jesus Christ is actually the eternal Son of God who took on flesh in the person of Jesus. And so we've been thinking about the incarnation and what we are to learn about God and ourselves and others through that event. Uh, This morning uh, and next week, we're going to be looking at Herod and then the Magi. Now, uh, King Herod and the Magi are two characters that we're really supposed to compare and contrast with one another. And so we're going to be doing that over the next couple of weeks, beginning with Herod this morning. Now, I know that when you think about Christmas, you're, you're likely a lot like me and others, and you tend to like to think about warm things, happy things, right? You like to have good memories from the past that are brought to mind. Uh, so maybe when you think about Christmas, uh, you think about things like, uh, I don't know, uh, Elf on the Shelf, maybe y'all, anybody take part in that kind of thing? Shame on you. We do that too. And, um, and then also uh, we think about things like, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire or maybe Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Uh, those are the things we like to think about. And yet this morning when we come to this story of King Herod, what we find is a character who absolutely will not let us domesticate Christmas. See, King Herod is a, a character that is uh, really the mascot, the embodiment of what evil leadership looks like, a kind of leadership that is controlled not by God, but by the evil one. And so this morning, as we're looking at King Herod, what we find is uh, a man, a king, who raged against Jesus in the cradle long before Jewish leaders put him to death on the cross. King Herod ruled Judea. Now, Judea is just a a Greek word for for, uh, Judah, Uh, but at this time, Judah was bigger than what the tribe of Judah Uh, ruled over, and so he had more authority, more uh, land than what original Judah did. Uh, He was born Edomian. He was an an Edomite. Uh, You remember Edom. Uh, He took the throne of Judah in 40 BC through a series of really cunning political moves with the Romans, and so he found himself uh, in control of this area. Now, if you're looking at this guy and you're trying to wonder, what, what is he like? Uh, I think that he could be described as a guy that was kind of sly as a fox and mad as a hatter, right? So he's able to do these things that show extreme wisdom and cunning politically, but then at the same time, he, he turns and does all kinds of things that look crazy and wicked. And so he was really a blend of, of gifts and, and also uh, violence. But what we find is, is that he was a complex man. See, uh, he was racially Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman. So he wasn't really sure who he was when he woke up in the morning. But he was a political machine, holding his crown as various emperors rose and fell, and he wasn't good for the people. We see this in a lot of ways. Uh, One is, we find that he actually burdened his people with extremely high taxes so that he could build these monuments to his glory to be remembered by. Uh, One of his great accomplishments is the creation and and building of the Jewish temple for the Jewish people. Uh, He created a temple that was uh, almost more glorious uh, in the way that it was built than the original temple. In fact, one archaeologist, Ehud Netzer, spoke of it saying, nothing like it has been found in the entire Roman Empire in terms of size and splendor. He was a man who wanted to be remembered for greatness, but he was also a paranoid 
and violent man given to fits, uh, fits of anger and rage. In fact, uh, we know that he killed his favorite wife. Can't imagine what happened to his least favorite wife. And three of his sons just to protect his throne. That's why Caesar Augustus said it's actually better to be Herod's pig than his son. See, his bitterness towards Jews refusing to acknowledge him as, uh, as, the Jewish, as Jewish led him, this is the kind of cruel guy he was, to actually arrange to have a hundred Jewish leaders killed on the day of his death just to make sure somebody cried. See, this man was wicked, but what we're going to see this morning is this, that the good king came to deliver us from the tyranny of bad kings. The good king came to deliver us from the tyranny of bad kings. Good king like Jesus to save us from the tyranny of bad kings like Herod. Now here's the first thing that we'll see. It's this, that King Herod is troubled by King Jesus. King Herod is troubled by King Jesus. You see this in the first three verses of chapter 2. Look there again with me. We're going to look at those verses. Matthew 2, 1 to 3. This is what it says. Now, after the Lord was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, now these men, these wise men, they were likely from Persia or Babylon, maybe, uh, you'll remember Daniel met Magi in Babylon. And, and they would have been uh, the kind of men that you would have seen uh, as being ethnically and religiously as far from God as you can imagine from the perspective of a Jew. Now they looked to the stars for clues to historical events. And they received a, a clear enough sign that the king of the Jews has, had arrived that they were willing to actually travel a thousand miles to Jerusalem. But we'll think about them more next week. I want to focus on King Herod here for the rest of this message. And just think about this for a moment. Imagine you're King Herod watching as this large caravan rolls into your city, Jerusalem, that you're ruling from. And along with this caravan, they have like white writing on the windows. Congratulations, it's a boy. Blue balloons everywhere, and he's watching, and he looks at them as they come in, and they proclaim that they are looking for the long-awaited King of the Jews, a title for the Messiah. Well, you can imagine from his perspective, maybe others should have been excited, but from his perspective, those blue balloons might as well have been black balloons, because they mark the demise of his leadership. What do you mean the King of the Jews has been born? I'm the King of the Jews, right? And so as we see this, we find that uh, the first century Romans would have been nervous about this kind of display because they trusted cosmic displays as predictive. In fact, tradition held that the constellation, there was a constellation that informed Magi about the birth of another great leader, Alexander the Great. So if you were King Herod, you would have taken this seriously. And it makes sense that Herod would have seen this claim as legit. And that the current king of the Jews would be troubled by the birth of the long-awaited king of the Jews. See, the king of kings signals great trouble for the king of Judah. And the Jewish leaders, they, you notice, were troubled with him. I love what Charles Spurgeon says here. I think it's so helpful in pointing out the irony. He says, what an indictment. 
What an indictment that this is on Israel, that they were troubled by the arrival of infinite mercy and almighty love. See, the Gentile Magi, they run to worship King Jesus while the king of the Jews, the chief priest, and even the experts in the law are troubled. Now catch this. I think that we all want to identify with the Magi in this story, and in many ways we can and should. I think Matthew probably wants us to empathize with the Magi. But if we just pause for a minute, I think that if we were honest, we would also notice that there's a little bit of Herod in all of our hearts. See, commentator Frederick Bruner, speaking of this text, says, Herod personifies the reality that the raw human reaction to the kingship of Jesus is rebellion. Maybe you've noticed that in your own heart. Your, your natural tendency left to yourself, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit miraculously in you to change your desires and make you new. Apart from that, your natural bent is towards rebellion against the good king. See, here it understood that Jesus was a king if he was anything at all. There was no confusion in his mind. He, he didn't uh, believe that, that Jesus might just be a savior, but not a lord and a king. He understood that if this man was who he said he was, he came with an otherworldly kind of authority that meant that his reign was over. Now, some shackles and chains are invisible and stronger than iron. And Satan had duped Herod into thinking that he was the best king for Herod. But he was enslaved to demonic rule. Have you ever thought that you would maybe be a better king of your life than King Jesus? Has that, has that thought ever crept into your mind or your heart? You know, I think our hearts can become paranoid towards Christ's reign in every area of our lives. We can start to question whether or not particular areas are right for King Jesus to come into and to reign. You know, one of the lies of our heart that leads to sin is that Jesus is, is a killjoy or that he's some kind of straitjacket, that his desire is in some way to put the safety on our joy and our meaning and our purpose in life so that maybe we should be a little bit less human than what we could be apart from him. It's a lie. But don't miss this. The reality is, and this is true for you and for me, the more that we submit to King Jesus the more human we become. The more that you submit to Christ and everything that He has called you to do in His Word, the more that you obey Him, it's not the more that you are shackled, it's the more that you are freed. The more that you are freed to the joy that God has created you for. So often we think that we should be in charge of how we view and do family, sex, power, control, sports, food, drink, or video games. Not, not all bad things, but... When in reality, what we know is, is that the things that we think that we are in control of actually turn and control us, right? The things that we think we have such authority over, that are exercising such authority of our freedom and our wills, actually have more control over us than we do them, and they become kings of us. See, the louder that we scream freedom sometimes, it is the louder that we hear our shackles rattling in the background. Let me just ask you uh, this morning, have you thought about what a good king Jesus is. Have you thought this morning about how good King Jesus is? If you haven't, that should be something that we are thinking of daily. How do you combat the lies about the fact that you're a better king than King Jesus? It's with the truth of God's Word as to how good King Jesus really is. 
And so how good is King Jesus? Well, I could give you a lot of scriptures, a lot of uh, realities about the nature of who Jesus is, how great he is. I'm going to give you four this morning. Let me just send you on a lifelong journey of discovering how great Jesus is. But here are four to get you started. One, Jesus created you. He made you. Did you know that? Colossians 2.16 tells us that Jesus created all things, both things seen and unseen, visible and invisible. Every rule, every authority, all things were created by Him, through Him, for Him, and to Him. That's Jesus. That's your Lord, your King. He is not like you. You are created. He is Creator. Now, here's just a natural byproduct of the fact that He is your Creator. It means that He actually knows you better than you know yourself. Do you believe that? That's the reality that we find in the nature of Jesus Christ as our Creator. He made us, and so He knows us and how we work. He knows when we're broken better than we know we are, how we are broken. He knows how we are supposed to work. He made us. And so, Jesus is a better King of your life, a better authority. And what He says, you ought to listen to because He knows you better than you do. There's a second thing that we see about Jesus that makes Him great beyond all others. Jesus loves you more than you love yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself. Just think about it. Jesus' Jesus's love is categorically different than our love. It's not just quantitatively different. It is also categorically different. It is not the love of a human who is created, but the love of a God who is creator. A love that actually changes and shapes the object of His affections. You, as a creation of God, are loved by Him more than you love yourself. And I know that because He is fully God and fully man. And He came to the cradle so that He could go to the cross and lay down His life for you. That's the love, the measure of the love of Christ for you. He loves you more than you love yourself. That means that He ushered in the infinite love of God at the cost of His own life for us and catch us while we were yet sinners. Before the adoption had been sealed, He shed His blood for you. That's the love of the Father for you through the Son. Jesus is a greater authority. Third, because He is already one forever. When Jesus died on the cross, God raised Him from the dead. And He did that to declare that He had defeated sin, death, and the devil. And Psalm 2 says, the kings of this world plot against Jesus. Just like Herod. And He who sits in the heavens, He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Why is God laughing while the kings are enraged against Him and His chosen one, His anointed one? It's because Jesus always wins and He's already won. See, the saddest thing about opposing Jesus is that even when you think you win, you lose. Just ask Satan. God beat him with his own stick at the cross. But in Romans, Paul tells us that the sheep of the good shepherd, King Jesus will face tribulation. But in 837, he gives us this reminder, this promise of his authority and his reign even now. He says, you are not simply sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things, we are more than what? Conquerors through him who loved us. Do you see it? We actually enter into the victory of the good king. And this throne is eternal. But there's a fourth thing just to be reminded about when you are struggling about whether or not King Jesus is really good and for you. And that's that He invites us to reign with Him. Did you know that? Did you know that one of the things that Christ invites us to do is to reign with Him? 
2 Timothy 2.12. Timothy there, we find Paul telling Timothy, if we endure, in other words, if we suffer faithfully and obey God, we will also reign with Him. That's Paul. So Jesus didn't kill to take power. He gave up His life to give it. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit driving us to be a blessing, not to take one. And in the end, Jesus He happily gives the kingdom to His Father in 1 Corinthians 15. But what we know is, is that He invites us to reign with Him, to be as fully human as God created us to be. But catch this. I I can understand King Herod being troubled by Jesus, as foolish as it was. He's going to lose His throne. Maybe He didn't understand the Bible well. Obviously, we're going to see He didn't. But what about the Jewish leaders? Did you notice that these Jewish leaders treated King Jesus with indifference? Uh, Notice, second, the Jewish leaders were indifferent towards King Jesus before they sought to kill Him. The the Jewish leaders, they were indifferent towards King Jesus before they sought to kill Him. Look again with me in in Matthew 2. Look in Matthew 2 at at what He says in verses 4 through 6. There it says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you of Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now you you know there's a problem if the king of the Jews doesn't know where the Christ is supposed to be born. Now, that wasn't a tricky Bible trivia question. Maybe it would be for you. But for a Jew, that should not be a hard question. See, Jews longed for the coming of the Messiah or that anointed king that God would send to save them. But Herod has to opt out for a lifeline and assembles all of the chief priests and scribes to ask them where the king was to be born. And the chief priest, that you know, aristocratic group of priests, they were part of the Sadducees, they served as high priests. They came together and they joined the scribes, which were uh, more teachers of the law, Pharisees. Uh, they usually didn't like each other, but Herod talks to both of them to ask them this one question. Where is this king supposed to be born? Now, here's a question I have for King Herod. Why didn't the king of the Jews know where the Christ was to be born? I mean, the king of the Jews, his job was to study the law, meditate on the law, and rule from the law. And yet here, he has no idea what the Word of God says. Don't miss this. Nothing prepares our hearts for Christ like God's Word. God's Word is sweeter than honey. Did you know that? Sweeter than honey. It's more precious and valuable than than really pure, expensive gold. That's what David says. God's Word is is so valuable to the people of God. There's nothing more valuable to them. They understand the value of the Word of God, that it breathes life into spiritually dead creatures. That it gives hope to those who are hopeless. And here we have a king, a king of the Jews, who has not looked to the Word of God. See, God's king loves God's Word, and so do His people. This king doesn't. Interestingly, I say interestingly, the the religious leaders did know God's Word. 
But, but notice that it's interesting the way they respond to it. Because here what we find is, is that these Jewish leaders both quickly point Herod to the prophet of Micah. They say, look, you want a GPS coordinate? Just go to the prophet Micah, and, or the prophet Micah, and he'll tell you exactly where this king was to be born. And they turn them to Micah 5, in verses 5 to 6, here in Matthew 2. And he says, they tell him, there it says in Micah, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you of Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this is interesting. Uh, Micah 5.2, Old Testament prophet. If you don't like New Testament quoting prophets, this is not a good section for you. Because they quote a lot of prophets here. Uh, but here he points back to Micah 5.2 and he says, Bethlehem is too little to be among the clans of Judah. But, but Matthew picks this up and he says, in light of Christ... This really means, Bethlehem, you are by no means least, for the greatest king that Israel has ever known will come from you to shepherd God's people. I think Matthew probably also had Micah 5, 4 in mind, even though he doesn't quote it. Uh, There it says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great till the ends of the earth. So this is no average king. Have we ever seen a king of Israel who has ruled and reigned to the ends of the earth? But the Christ will come bearing Yahweh's power and Yahweh's name to the very ends of the earth. And then in verses 7-8, to they tell us that Herod, though he receives the word of God and the prophecy of how great this king, this coming king would be, and this Messiah is, he responds and he's already scheming like a demon. Did you see this? Verses 7 to 8, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. I want to, bl- I want to bring my balloons too. Well, we know later that that's not exactly the case. But did you notice the, the response here? Herod actually tries to outwit God when he hears the gospel. The gospel is not good news that he receives and believes. The the gospel is something that he tries to thwart and stop. Now, I know that that sounds kind of dumb when you say it out loud. Like that Herod tried to stop God. But he has the arrogance of heart to think that he can avoid God's king. Just remember this. Rejecting God's king, King Jesus, is rejecting God. It has been since the days of Herod. Whether that's adamant, or accidental, not receiving King Jesus means that you're acting in rebellion against God. So this morning, if you're here, maybe you're just here because like, you've been promised like, a really good Christmas with your family, a good meal with Grandma. I don't know what it is. But I'm glad you're here if you're not a Christian. And I want you to know that the good news is, is that you can be not an enemy of God, but actually a child of God. The good news is, is that King Jesus can be for you and not against you. But the the good news also says that you need to do something, that you need to respond to this good news of what Christ has done for you on the cross. You need to repent, turn from your sins, put your faith in Him, and be saved. If you haven't done that, please don't leave without doing that. You need to put your faith in Christ today. See, God sent Jesus here 
and only Jesus to lay down his life for sinners like us. And only his rule will lead to eternal life and joy for you. But also notice here, Christian, the indifference of religious leaders to Jesus. Did you see this? Did you notice how indifferent these religious leaders were to Jesus? They are too troubled by Herod to be troubled with God's grace. See, the Gentile magi, these Gentile magi, they actually, we are told, travel something like a thousand miles to worship King Jesus, but the elite Jewish leaders of the day can't make the six-mile jog from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. I mean, just think about it. Don't you wonder, as you read this, why the religious leaders refuse to be troubled with King Jesus? The text doesn't exactly tell us. And it it almost leads us to think that maybe there are a lot of different reasons for why they weren't going to be troubled with God's grace and with the good news of the gospel. I mean, how could religious men support King Crazy Horse if they even had a glimmer of a chance that God's king had arrived? Well, maybe they were simply too busy with the affairs of life. You probably know how daily life can distract you from God's word and God's people, right? I mean, you, you've probably experienced how uh, you've been um, just caring for your family, uh, going to work, trying to, to be a, a faithful uh, Christian um, and, and going to church and all of these things, and yet maybe in all of those things you can get distracted from the goodness of King Jesus towards you. Or maybe these religious leaders just didn't want to upset their otherwise comfortable lives. I mean, right, they'd kind of settled into the normal. And, and though it wasn't great, I mean, it could be way worse. And it had been way worse. And maybe they were just really comfortable and didn't want to mess up comfort. It could have been that they were wearied and they're waiting for Jesus. You know, maybe that's you this morning. You're, you're facing extreme suffering. Sickness debt, broken family relationships, and you know that you have the the promise of Jesus coming back in your pocket, but at the same time, you tend to forget it because you're wearied and you're waiting on Christ to return. And maybe this was some of them. I mean, just imagine hundreds of years of waiting on the promise of a king who would come and save you. I get bored waiting at the in and out line. Hundreds of years waiting for King Jesus to come. And all that while, you're navigating a variety of wicked foreign powers who treated you like a visitor in your own home. Maybe others face the danger of rival kings, and they fear the the danger of rival kings duking it out. I mean, if there's ever a fight between kings, innocent people suffer and die, right? Maybe they just wanted safety. And some might have thought, I've already got the job of my dreams. I'm a chief priest. What more could I want? Why disrupt things? Maybe the new guy won't like me. I haven't been working that hard. Some chains and shackles that you can't see are far more powerful than the shackles and chains made of iron that you can see. But don't miss this. The same men who ignored Jesus' cradle would later send Jesus to the cross. Just a generation after these chief priests and scribes treated Jesus with indifference, they would seek to have Jesus murdered in Matthew 26. And we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that indifference to the cross, having a heart that is cold towards the gospel, having a life that is not driven by the Holy Spirit 
to obey God and to glorify Him, a life that is distracted by worldly affairs rather than being compelled by the glory of God is not a safe place to be when Jesus is coming back. We need to be enthralled with Christ. We don't need to be distracted or indifferent towards Christ coming for us. That should be the fuel for the fire that burns and drives our lives. Here we find men who are indifferent to God's Word and later would put Jesus to death. We should be more troubled with grace than we were troubled by King Herod. But catch this. You can't know Jesus without the Bible, but this is a fearful reminder that you can know a lot about God's Word and not know Jesus. So you can know a lot of theology and still be an enemy of Christ. Friend, are you more troubled by the comforts of this life being shaken or taken from you? And so troubled by those that you're too troubled to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? You know, greater grace means greater trouble. And that might not sound right, but it does. It, my experience in life is the more that you love Jesus and you serve Him, sometimes the harder things get. It's never easy to depose a king, especially when it's in our hearts. I mean, isn't it harder to apply God's Word than to memorize it? Have you noticed that? Like, man, that memory verse was hard, but it was a lot easier than actually obeying it. It's a lot of trouble to know God's Word, but it's more trouble to love your wife as Christ loves the church, right? And ladies, to submit to your husbands as the son submits to the father. It's trouble to disciple your kids. It's trouble to lose friends and family because you love them enough to share Christ with them. It's trouble. It's trouble to reconcile broken relationships where you've sinned or been sinned against. Sometimes you think it would just be easier to let it pass by. It's trouble to give when our hearts scream, get. But catch this. Every time God's grace troubles us to dethrone sinful desires in our hearts, He always offers us the sweeter joy of a better King, King Jesus. And whatever sinful desires we kill in our hearts are always worth the greater joy of gaining Jesus. But just look at verses 16 to 18, at what our good king has come to do. Our better king is leading a greater exodus. That's what he wants us to see here in this text. Our greater king, our better king, is leading a greater exodus. We see that in verses 16 to 18. So look there with me again, really quickly. This is what, what verses 16 to 18 say. Then Herod. He saw that he had been tricked by the wise men. They didn't come and tell him about baby Jesus. And he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That's a a sad text, right? Like, not the kind of thing that you typically send on a Christmas greeting card. It's not the kind of thing that warms your heart. But this is exactly the context into which Jesus Christ was born. Now, few, as we know, outwitted Herod and lived to tell about it. Here we find that the Magi in those verses 9 to 14, 15 that we just skipped over, we're going to cover those next week. 
what we find is, is that those, those magi actually were told in the dream not to tell King Herod what had happened, that his plans were not good, but that they were evil. And here what we find is that this king, King Herod, actually intends evil for this child. Now, if you were to look in verse 15, you'll notice that he quotes another prophet, Hosea. We'll look at that next week. In verse 15, he quotes Hosea 11.1. But what's interesting is, is that Hosea 11.1 is a, a text that's about God promising to save His people out of exile. And in that text, He reminds them of the way that He saved them out of Egypt during the Exodus. And He says, I want you to know that that thing that I did for you before, I'm going to do again. I'm going to deliver you. That day is coming. Well, then we find yet another text from the Old Testament that's quoted, and that's here in verses 16 to 18 where he quotes Jeremiah 31.5, another Old Testament prophecy text. And here Matthew says that the tragedy, this horrific tragedy of Herod killing all of these babies is actually foreshadowing. It's a picture uh, in Jeremiah 31.5 that is fulfilled in what happens in Matthew chapter 2 with King Herod. Now I believe what's happening is, is that He's quoting from this text in Jeremiah and he's saying this is a type of way that we see history unfold, that God works in history, and it's repeated. Uh, It was repeated back in the exodus out of Egypt, and it's going to be repeated again here with King Herod. But in Jeremiah 31, we're given the text that King Herod's actions is supposed to be tied to and here's what Jeremiah said. He said, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Uh, Carson, Dr. Carson explains why Rachel, the idealized mother of the Jews, is weeping for, uh, from her grave in this verse. So the picture is that she's dead and buried and she's weeping from the grave over what's happening. Well, Carson explains what's happening. See, the the commander of Nebuchadnezzar's imperial guard of Babylon gathered the captives at Ramah before taking them into exile in Babylon. Ramah lay to the north of Jerusalem on the way to Bethel. So Rachel's tomb was at Zelzah, which is that same area. So Jeremiah 31, what we find here is that Rachel is actually crying out from the grave as she's watching her children Israel march out of the land and into exile. What a sad vision for Rachel. She watches her children carried off into slavery. But Jeremiah 31, catch this, is actually a really hopeful chapter. In fact, it's one of the more hopeful chapters in the Bible. It's one of my favorite chapters. See, in Jeremiah 31, God actually promises to restore the faithful remnant of Israel, causing them to sing with gladness. And so God's response to Rachel's weeping comes in verse in, uh, Jeremiah 31.16, where He says, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work. In other words, your suffering is not meaningless, declares the Lord. And they, He tells them, He tells her, they shall come back from the land of the enemy. In other words, I'm going to return you to your land. I'm going to keep my promises. 
And I love what he goes on to say in Jeremiah 31, 31. God there, you'll remember, promises to make a new covenant with Judah and Israel, saying, I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Do you see the promise here? Amidst deep loss, God promises a better day is coming with a new covenant relationship where all of God's people will know Him directly. Now at this time, they had to go through prophets, priests, and kings, but here God says, you will come directly to Me, and we know this happens through His Son. So brothers and sisters, we know that the day has arrived, that day with Christ. Every time we take communion, we take a cup of which Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So that we are a visible sort of people who are meeting together and through that communion claiming that we are the visible people of God. That we are where God is fulfilling His promises. That God is not dead, that God is alive and active and He always keeps His promises. Do you see that? Did you catch that? It took the blood of King Jesus. Don't miss this. It took the blood of King Jesus to wipe away Rachel's tears and our tears. We as Gentiles get to experience the fruits of the new covenant that came at the cost of the blood of Christ. God wanted you to be happy forever to the the point that He was willing to shed the blood of His one and only Son. And Jesus willingly came and He was so serious about your eternal joy that He said, I will suffer and die for you and to be raised from the dead to promise that this is going to be true for you too. We see a number of things here that are encouraging. One, don't miss the sacrifice of Jesus for you. Don't miss it. The eternal Son of God came and entered this violent world as an adopted refugee who the King of Judah sought to abort. I mean, he had everything against him. He did not enter with an extravagant fanfare. This is a son who came and suffered from the moment his little tender body hit the cradle. Which, by the way, had been used as a feeding trough for animals just moments before. This was not a privileged king. This was a king that came as the eternal son of God and stooped down, condescended for you and me so that he might suffer in every way. In our likeness. This is a king, a savior, who suffered from the cradle to the cross for his love for you. Here's the good news. No earthly king can abort the plan of God to save the people of God. Herod thought that he could stop God's plan if he could kill the baby. Mysteriously, this great king couldn't kill the baby of this young couple. No, he he wouldn't have his life taken from him because he came to give his life. It wasn't time for Jesus to die till the time of the cross arrived. And there was nothing that was going to distract Jesus from that, that mission from beginning to end. No human authority can thwart the purposes of God for you. But not only that, don't miss that Jesus understands suffering. I just want you to know, like, I want all of y'all to have really big, happy Christmas trees. I want you to have lots of really nicely wrapped presents. I want you to have joyful Christmases. I want you to sing happy songs. I want you to put your hope in God. I want your families to get along. I want you to have joy, and not just trite joy, but meaningful joy in the Lord. I want you to have great Christmases. I wish y'all didn't have to suffer, but here's the reality. Jesus entered a world of suffering 
And none of us get exempt from suffering. That's just the reality of where we live. I know that so many of you brothers and sisters who I love dearly have suffered greatly. I've seen it over even just the past year. Many of you, sick, hurting, and pain, family loss, all kinds of difficult struggles, all of these different kinds of suffering. And here's the great encouragement that we have here at the very beginning of Jesus' life, even before we see him get out of the cradle. What we find is, is that Jesus didn't come and ignore your suffering. He stepped right into it. Isn't that an encouraging encouragement? You have a king, the king of kings, who didn't see it to above him to come and to enter into your suffering to know you, to understand how you suffer, the, the, the struggles that you have, the pains that you face, so that when you come before your God, you're not coming before a God that is so separate from you that he can't understand what's going on in your life. This is a Christ who understands your petitions before Him. This is a Christ who wants to deliver you because He understands the pain of suffering and loves you to the uttermost. See, both the cradle and the cross tell us that God's Son took on flesh and entered our sufferings with us. He loves you and knows your suffering and He will deliver you from them. I know that it might not feel like that for some of you today, but Jesus is coming back and your sufferings will be no more. You know, I had a nice room with Benjamin whenever, I was, uh, whenever we were uh, going through having Benjamin. Really nice room. It was, it was beautiful, actually. I think it was like a thousand square feet in this hospital that we were in. And I was thinking, this is fantastic. It had like, I think it might have even had like a subwoofer with a TV and stuff. It was just fantastic. And then it came time for Johnny, and Johnny was born, and we were in a hospital, and the room looked like the closet of that room. And I remember we kept on comparing it to that room and thinking, like, what a horrible room to have our, our son in. It's so small. Like, I barely even have a place to sit. This is horrible, the injustice of it all. And little did I, I think about Jesus Christ who came and was born in a dirty stable. The King of kings and eternal God came down and was born in a dirty place. He was born as a, a man who was hated, He had the king trying to kill him, trying to abort him. He was not born with with great fanfare or money. He was in danger. He was a refugee. And that that was what Jesus was. But what we know is that we have a Savior who can understand our grief and our temptations to sin amidst trials. Because he stepped down into the world with us. And Jesus knows what it's like to be a single, a refugee, tempted by Satan. He understands our hearts. And Hebrews four fifteen to 16 encourages us in this way. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. I wonder this morning if, if in your sufferings you've forgotten to look to God. If maybe just for a moment you've started to believe the lie that Jesus doesn't understand your suffering and that he can't really help you. Brothers and sisters, the cradle and the cross tell us that Jesus can help us, that he will help us, that he wants to. Author of Hebrews tells us that there is fresh help to be offered until that final help of the second coming of Jesus comes. Pray to God, trust in Christ that he understands and loves you. But not only that, finally, trust that the future King Jesus will bring The future Jesus Christ will bring when he returns. Trust it. Trust that future. Trust that there's a glorious hope that is to come. Let that that day, that final day, shape every day of your life and silence your fears and your sufferings. You know, Jesus, 
Jesus will wipe away Rachel's tears. You hear me? One day he's going to wipe away her tears and the tears of the martyrs in heaven who continue to cry out in injustice and your tears and my tears, the tears of the people of God are going to be wiped away. It might not feel like today you'll ever have an end of your sorrow and your tears, but God promises a day is coming. See, Christmas looks from the first advent to the second advent. We see here the first coming of Jesus, but it promises that Jesus is also coming back. And we look to Jesus' coming, which promises that He will come again. And He will wipe away all the tears. In fact, I love what Revelation 21 says. Where the Apostle John has this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And what Christ will bring when that happens. And there we're told that He will wipe away all of our tears. This is what He says, 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is more even than what it is now. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Don't you long for that day? And on that day, let me tell you what's going to happen. He will, verse 4, wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things are passed away. Brothers and sisters, that's the promise that Christ has brought us. As you think about Christmas, maybe you're thinking about all of your losses and your sufferings. And here's a great Christmas promise. Jesus came to wipe away your tears. He's not done yet, but He's going to finish it. It's coming. Let's pray.